good music is just the baseline to get into the conversation. I want to know as like a manager or promoter, how good you're getting at everything else surrounding your music. So like understanding your brand, like what are you doing online? How are you engaging people? Who's this music for? What's the audience? Where's your niche? Maybe it's something that makes my ears bleed. But if you have a thousand people who love it and will pay you for it, like that's all that matters. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. Joining me today is a modern-day triple threat. He's an event producer, a promoter, but he's also a performer. Under his stage name, DJ Deadweight, he plays across North America from festival slots at South by Southwest and Mondo, New York City, to opening for artists like Diplo, Puya, and Pusha T. But he knows more than just how to keep the crowd moving late into the night. He also knows how to move tickets. He's a partner at Smash Mouth Entertainment, a multifaceted events and artist service company that has worked with Flatbush Zombies, Joey Badass, Kendrick Lamar, ASAP Mob, and many, many more. He is definitely a guy that you should keep tabs on if you're involved at all in the Toronto music scene. Join me live today, my buddy, Cormac McGee. Thanks a lot for tuning in, man. That's hey, a what an intro. Bio. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time crafting it. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite line that you put in that. So yeah, uh, total transparency. I hardly had to write that intro for Cormac because he's done such a good job putting his own bio together. But my favorite line in that was, Cormac's good at two things, pushing tickets and, or yeah, moving tickets and moving people on the dance floor. Yeah. When I wrote that, I was, I think I was sitting beside my girlfriend and I read it to her and I was like, is that too cute? Like, is that like too on the nose? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Nah, let's just keep it and see what happens. It's perfect, um, man. Like I would never send that to a, like a club if I was trying to get a gig, but it works great for like corporate like trying to sell myself to like corporate gigs. And that's what the website really is for, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of what I understood from your website is it's very much just like, here's my, here's what I can do for you. And here's yeah. what my music sounds like. Do you want to work together? Yeah. And so you mentioned like club promote or getting a gig at a club is different than getting a corporate gig. What What are some nuances there? Yeah, so I mean... It basically comes down to like the knowledge and curation ability of the person that you're that you're talking to, right? So if you're like if you're a corporation, let's say like Good Life, I've DJed for Good Life before. It's basically like they will hit you up and be like, "Hey, um, we're looking for a DJ for this like staff party. What's your rate?" Because they have like no idea what a DJ's rate is. They have no idea like how booking a DJ works. Um, they just want someone who can like play background music. Um, and so that's why I have the bio on the website. I have all the logos of companies I've worked with, things like that to make me look like legitimate. But, you know, talking to a club promoter, it's way more just about like, does that person like you? They don't really care. I mean, if you have a reputation of playing in other clubs or playing with certain artists or whatever, that helps, but it's really like, if it's your first time in the club, like don't ask the promoter to DJ there, right? Like you need to have been there. They need to know kind of who you are. It's kind of like dating a bit more. Whereas like the corporate stuff is a bit more like Tinder. It's like, okay, we match, like let's go. You know? Yeah. And the fact that you had logos on there and you're kind of, um, you're offering made it feel very much like a business, like it's just yeah. a straight up business page that you'd see for any tech company where they say, here are companies that use our SaaS platform and here's the team and here's what we, what we're good at. And so yeah. I think that's a really unique angle that you have on it is you've chosen to kind of make yourself three pronged and able to do not only the entertainment, but also the, the promotion and the event orchestration. What, what, 
drove you to to diversify and not just pick one? Um, well, I think basically like when I started DJing in university, I also started like promoting events and small shows um, and then started gradually doing bigger and bigger ones. And I honestly love doing like the promotion and production side just as much as I love DJing. Um, I really like DJing, but I'm not one of those people who can like, if you want to make a real living as a DJ, like you need to either be like touring all the time or playing in clubs like six, seven nights a week. And that's just not my lifestyle. Um, I like to talk to people. I like, you know, engaging. I don't want to like stand in a cramped dark booth for like four hours a night, just playing the same songs over again. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just not my, my thing. And so I really, yeah, it's kind of like you said, it's, it's offering like different services. So you need a DJ, I'll come in. You need someone who's also going to promote. I can do that. You need somebody who's going to help with like stage setup and audio production. I can do that. Package them all together for one fee, pick and choose. Um, it helps, it helps you, helps me stand out a little bit in the market. Yeah, for sure. And obviously it's, it's working because you've got, uh, <laughs> in, in this, in this research that came up that you've done some work with, with Kendrick Lamar and I'm not that into hip hop, but that's a name that I think a lot of people <laughs> can recognize. What, what was yeah. that experience about? So our company Smash Mouth actually, um, the way the company started was by my now partner, um, Brendan Hugo, when he was at school, um, in London, Ontario, Western. And he started it just as like a small concert promoter out there. And then he came to Toronto, um, and tried to do some different shows. And one of, one of those shows ended up being Kendrick's like first ever show in Toronto, um, that we did. And so, basically the company for a long time had a niche of like bringing people to Toronto for the first time, like when they were just starting to blow up. So they, we did Kendrick's show. We did like post Malone. We've done Travis Scott, like really big names now. Um, and it's basically like Brendan's real skill when, when he started this and when we were doing this is like going on the blogs, figuring out like who is up and coming, who is next and like bringing them there. And the company would often lose money but like the street cred the company got from that was really good. And, um, and we used to always think like, Oh man, like Kendrick just did a show with us. Like when he comes back, he's going to be huge and we're going to be rich. And then the next time Kendrick would come back, he'd come back with like live nation and basically like tell us to fuck ourselves. Cause we're like too small, you know, but, but, it, but it's fun. It's it, like concert promotion, especially hip hop concert promotion is a hard game. Um, for a variety of reasons, but you know, like venues don't necessarily want hip hop shows. You always have to hire extra security. If they're coming from the States, people get turned away at the border because they'll often have like criminal history or like are doing something stupid, like smoking weed on the bus or whatever. Um, so it's one of those things that you really have to love. And like through those times, I think um, Smash Mouth had like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And so I've been reading a, a book recently called the, the Experience Economy. And one thing that they talk about is the immersive experience that people feel in a, in a specific situation. And live music to me is, is one of those fully immersive experiences. Like whether, cause you're in complete control of what you're paying attention to. Like you can just be transfixed on the drummer or you can be transfixed at the DJ or you can be talking to the person beside you or just sipping your drink in the corner. Like you can choose what part of the experience you engage with, uh-huh. but, it's, but you can't escape it. Like it's all around you, the music, the bass, like everything about it is immersion, immersing, immersing you. <laughs> You're immersed in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was just kind of, I was just thinking about that as uh, just such an interesting way to think about your line of business like you are in the experience business of trying to give people the kind of experience that they're looking for and so certain cases that show might be really loud and really aggressive because that's the experience people came there for but it also means that you need to be very good at promoting and and finding those types of people because it's not going to be for everyone like it's not you need to know your audience and then serve them the experience but also the messaging to get them in the door yeah, yeah, no, you're totally right. And as 
like, especially when I think of DJing, you know, there's two types of DJs and often DJs will shift between the two of them, but there's that DJ that's like, you know, I know exactly what the crowd is. I know exactly what the crowd wants and I'm not going to like switch from this like very specific genre that like I do and I do very well. And then there's another kind which is more like, and you know, I think this is how a lot of people start and I, how I definitely started is like, you try to get a gig at the bar, you play a bunch of songs, you try to see what's hitting well, and then you try to play more of those kinds of songs. So you're a bit more like flexible all over the place, but you're totally right. It's like that idea of immersion. And I think we're in an interesting time now. I'm going to pull it back a lot right now, but when music first was like a thing, the only way to experience music was live music, right? But now with recording, often people's first experience with a piece of music is the recorded version. So when they come to a live show, they're expecting to hear that recorded version. And I think that's an interesting thing to play with now. And like the best artists or the best DJs that I see are people who can take that and manipulate it in a way that it's still largely what those people want, but it's unique to that performance, if that makes sense. And that's what people say is how you make a hit song. It's 95% of everything that you've ever heard before in pop music, and then 5% something new. Because if it's too new, people aren't going to know what to do with it. If it's 100% old, it's just a copy. And it's the same with performing. If you, you know, you make a certain song acoustic, or you you don't sing the chorus and you get the crowd to sing the chorus. It could be as simple as that or it can be like more and more complicated. But I think that's like the a really exciting part of like live live performance right now. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because someone probably bought that ticket hoping to see the five songs that they ever li- they always listen to on Spotify. Like that that was to them worth yeah. the sixty dollars or whatever the ticket is yeah. was to hear those five songs. And so if the if the artist goes up and plays them differently than what they're used to listening to, they're gonna be mad about that. Like they need to you need to give people what they want. But I like that idea of five percent different so that it's still uh, an art form and it's not just going up and repeating the same chords. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's like the one of the toughest things when you're working with an artist is having them see it that way sometimes, because, you know, for an artist, it's all about, it can be all about the art and their performance, but you also have to look at it from a business standpoint. And like you, Stu, are no good to me if you only come to my concert once. But like, if you come to my concert every time I come into your city, then you are really valuable. And so we have to take into consideration like how do we make sure we hit like what Stu wants and what like the thousand other Stu's want in that room at the same time, yeah. um, which is a fun challenge. How do you break that down? Like how, as, as someone who works with artists, um, it's easier to get to take a step back. It's not your work. You get to kind of be a little bit more yeah. judgmental and suggestive. How do you break it down when you need uh, your the artists you work with to think of themselves differently than they currently do? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think anyone who has like the solid answer to that is like really rich somewhere. They're the ones making money. <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's different with every artist, honestly, like some artists really get it and they can see the direct connection between the ticket you've bought and like the food they're going to eat later. Um, Some need a little more coaching, but really the way I like to talk to them about it is like demographics. So if you look out into your crowd at a show, what kind of faces are you seeing? Like how old are they? Like what ethnicity are they? What are they wearing? Um, And then trying to build a concert experience to serve those different demographics. So it might be in your song choice. It might be how you play your songs. What are your merch pieces? What are you wearing? Um, Who's opening for you like what's the experience from when they get into the into the club um what potential brand partnerships are you doing in the club i saw um what was it probably about a year ago maybe almost two years ago i saw uh jesse reyes live um she's canadian i guess now she's like a pop star basically but she had a partnership with red bull and they had a they had a made a bar 
actually on the concert floor and they were only selling Jesse's drink, which was like whiskey and Red Bull, I think. And that's not something like I would ever drink by myself. But as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, hell yeah. Like I'm going to drink Jesse's drink. So you got like a special Jesse Reyes cup. Um, and I paid like $15 for that. But then they also had different versions of that for people who like either don't want an energy drink or don't want alcohol. So my friend's parents were there and like her dad just bought like a straight whiskey in the cup and her mom bought like something else in the cup. And I think that was like a really interesting way of looking at your different demographics and like serving them a variety of products in a simple way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so let's get a little bit into like what it takes to be a professional musician in 2020, because you touched on in that, in that concert experience you just described, you not only describe the concert itself, which is the main performance, but you described merchandise, you described beverages yeah. and refreshments, you described the actual venue itself, the, the, the headliners, um, even like the media used to get people in the door beforehand. Like there's a lot of, it's not yeah. just, you have to be good at music. You have to be good at about seven other things in order to put together the full experience. Yeah, good music is just the baseline. To get into the conversation, your music has to be good. And that's one of those things that, you know, it sounds crude, but when people tell me like they're working on their music, and this is something my friend told me once, like, if you tell me you're working on your music, like I automatically like probably won't pay attention to you anymore. Because like, I don't need to, I don't want to know about like, how good you're getting at your music. I want to know as like a manager or promoter, how good you're getting at everything else surrounding your music. So like understanding your brand, like what are you doing online? How are you engaging people? It's expected that if you want to be in this industry, that your your music has to be good. Right. And that's obviously very subjective. I'm, I'm not ever one to say like this music is good or this music is bad. I'm more like, okay, who's this music for? What's the audience? Where's your niche? Maybe it's something that makes my ears bleed. But if you have a thousand people who love it and will pay you for it, like that's all that matters. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to keep ranting here. You stop me when I want, but no man, keep touching on it. <laughs> so you mentioned like the thousand true fans, which goes for pretty much anything. Like music is a business. Um, every artist you listen to has a business model. They're all look slightly different, but what in right about now, what is, uh, in your experience, one of the more, um, the higher revenue generating activities that an artist can do? Yeah. So when I think about revenue for an artist, I think about like three main things and they all obviously have their own kind of subgroups, but fans to pay you money, brands to pay you money. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. And third, and this is more specific to Canada or Europe is grants and the government. Um, Those can all rhyme. Fans. Fans, brands, grants. (laughs) (laughs) Easy to remember. Maybe that's my book. (laughs) Honestly, dude. Um, But yeah. Talk about about fans first. Yeah. So fans are your most sustainable source of income because they will, can stay with you forever. Right. Um, And the whole music industry is set up to make your, you as an artist, your connection with fans easier again, I'll pull it back here. Like the whole reason record labels were invented were two things. One, because in the early 1900s, recording was really expensive. So like a regular artist, like you or me couldn't afford it. So record companies would give the artist money to be able to rent a recording studio. But second, because these companies, as they grew larger and larger, they offered a huge marketing support team. Um, and it's still something they offer today. Like, you know, I can promote my artists in a variety of ways, but I don't have the power to get my artist on a billboard in Mexico city next week. Like maybe a multinational record label does, but what an artist gives up for that relationship is the record label owns a lot of the copyrights on their music and long-term is going to be the ones making the money, not the artist. So right now what we're seeing is like a shift in that where artists are starting to go direct to fans more. Um, And they're trying to cut out middlemen. They're trying to cut out big record labels. And I say this with a caveat because there's a 
time and place for working with companies like that, definitely. And they can be very helpful, but we're in the, we're in an age now where like being an independent artist is like a sexy term and a sexy thing. Um, but it's really about unlocking. It's like, like you said at the beginning, like my website looks like a tech company's website and that's how artists need to be thinking. Like an artist is a startup and it's like, how do you go direct to your consumers and then scale those consumers um, or scale that market or whatever. Um, and that's why, again, I talk about um, like the niche, not everyone needs to be a pop star, but if you have like that niche of people who are going to follow you to the ends of the earth, like that's a very, very powerful thing. Um, and you can get them to pay you in a variety of ways, right? Like the most obvious is like concert tickets, merchandise, um, like special events and meet and greets, um, you know, paying you to do live streams or like what's very popular right now is like shout outs. Like, you know, if I was an artist and it was your birthday, I'd shout you out personally and someone would have paid me for that. There's a variety of ways to do it. Um, and artists are finding new ways to do it every day. Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting point there that, uh, it's not, like the music is their gateway to becoming a, a character in your life. And it's people will pay for exposure to you on top of just your music, like yeah. uh, creating like a membership site where people can see your early drafts and like your, your B side songs and your sketches on the side of your paper and like behind the scenes photos. Like that's worth it. That's worth $15 a month to some people. Uh, definitely definitely on top of going to your shows like it's it's very compounding exactly and like when we think when i think of my artists fans i think of them in kind of like a traditional sales funnel way so you know at the top there's like people who might only hear you let's say like on a spotify playlist and then there's people who like know your name and kind of know who you are and might listen to a song or two then there's like the people who are real fans who are going to come to your concert and then there's like the super fans at the bottom of the funnel who are not only going to pay for everything but are like evangelists for you Mm -hmm. and you need to tap into those markets in different ways and by combining those markets you can make a good living for yourself like there's a lot of artists who you will never hear on the radio or never see on like a big spotify playlist but they tour the world playing you know 500 cap rooms and make a great living or even less rooms but they make six figures a year and they live like comfortably you know we're gonna come back and loop around back with spotify in a bit because that's a huge a huge dark hole but um i want to keep talking about uh so we just covered uh, fans, mm-hmm. why don't we jump into brands a little bit? I don't think I understand how uh, what the relationship between a brand and an artist would look like right now. Yeah, so like brand partnerships is a big revenue opportunity for artists. Um, and it can be like multiple ways. It could be something as simple as let's say if it was like an h and m, you're a, you you're a model for them. Um, a big thing also is like sync licensing, which is, you know, let's use H&M again as an example. If they have a commercial and they feature your song in that commercial, that's a huge payday for an artist. Um, getting played at like sports games or in arenas, that's a lot of money um, as well. Basically, what you're trying to do as an artist is set yourself up to have such a strong fan base that brands want to market to that fan base through you and are willing to give you money to do that. Um, And again, that can look like a variety of things. So ideally you're trying to create a pull mechanism where your fans are, are substantial enough that it makes sense for a brand to pay you in order to reach those people. So that's, again, the key is still being super niche and having a very discreet audience so you know exactly who they are because then you can approach a brand or or the brand can approach you and say show me your demographics and you can prove that it's worth their time to engage so in that example with red bull i know red bull's massive and they they probably cover a lot of uh ground and genres but they probably did that one because they knew that the demographic attending 
would jive with uh, Red Bull's brand persona. So it's like young people who are active mm-hmm. in going to live concerts and uh, aren't necessarily like aggressive and violent. They're just kind of enjoying music, which goes exactly with Red Bull's kind of music brand. Yeah, exactly. And because Jesse herself is such a fan of Red Bull and not necessarily Red Bull, the company, but she loves to drink whiskey and Red Bull. Right. So it was, and like, this is authentic as a buzzword, but it was an authentic partnership. Like they don't have to force her to be up on stage being like, Oh, I love this Red Bull. Like it's, it's true. Right. Um, and it becomes so organic too. Like those artists start posing with pictures, whether they mean to or not. Like, I wonder how many pictures of, Post Malone's funny to me. I, again, like I'm not a huge hip hop art uh, fan, but I, it, it's such a, a culture though that it's hard to escape. Like it's embedded yeah. in every media that I consume now, and so I'll see Post Malone's Instagram pictures, and 80 percent of them have a Bud Light in them. <laughs> what, yeah. I don't know, and so I kind of wonder. It's like either his roadies are really good at making sure that there's always a Bud Light in frame so that his photographer can take a picture or he actually is just always drinking Bud Light. I don't, I can't really tell. It's honestly probably both. Like Bud Light (laughs) is one of his biggest sponsors, but I think it's because like, you know, where does he come from? He comes from Texas, like, like a country town in Texas loves drinking like cheap beer, Bud Light, probably approached him and was like, Hey, why don't you drink nothing but Bud Light and we'll give you a bag of cash and all the beer you can drink. That's a <laughs> no-brainer, you know? As someone who works with artists, is that a strategy that you suggest to your artists is like be really good to your brands because they can be really good to you in return? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um whether it's something as small as, you know, like when you're a developing artist, you're not gonna necessarily get paid but brands will often send you like clothing or shoes or like, you know, one of my artists got sent a bunch of weed the other day. (laughs) And it's like, you know, if you go on your Instagram story and like smoke this weed and talk about how good it is, like that brand is going to love you forever. Um, That probably won't work in every part of the world, but in Canada right now where it's (laughs) legal, that's a, that's that's an emerging market that people are needing to figure out how to monetize. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We don't need to touch too much on grants, but I think that's pretty universal that 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 art does have government grants. No matter where you are in the world, it'll just be different uh, funding pots that you're going to have to go do some research and digging. But that's, again, like it's a supported industry, um, just like tech. Like there's always going to be some type of um, early stage because it's a business. They need that early stage funding. Yeah. And I I think the one important thing about grants is that it's another way you have to make yourself marketable. So like the way you market yourself to your fans versus the way you market yourself to a brand might be different. Right. And then the way you market yourself to the government is also going to be different because there's a certain box that they want you to fit in. Um, And if you can adapt yourself to that, you can be very successful in that lane. And, I, and that goes for any of those three lanes. You know what I mean? If, if you're able to be like somewhat authentic version of yourself when you talk to the government and when you talk to Red Bull and then when you talk to like that 16-year-old in his bedroom and they all feel like they connect with you, like that's a very powerful thing as an artist. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's dive into streaming because we've chatted about this sure. before um, and I just find it so interesting as a consumer because I don't really know what the business model looks like behind it. All I know is that I, I cash out, I, I, I give Spotify $10 a month and I get yeah. unlimited access to as many songs as I can, as I consume. And I just, I just play it. Usually it's in the background and I just walk away and it'll play for a couple hours and the experience is seamless. Um, but I wonder what it's like from the musician side and, and how people um, need to play in order to really take advantage of that platform's ability. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good question. Um, and again, maybe I'll pull it back for some context and you can tell me if my history lessons are too boring, but no, no, no I like them. <laughs> the history of recorded music is that, you know, major record labels would pay artists to, to record and then the labels would own that content um and then for a long time the labels and whatever other companies actually 
created and owned the distribution as well. So, you know, vinyl, CDs, cassette tapes, those were all like industry innovations. And that was distribution that was controlled. So when you pay $10 for a CD, you're not just paying for the music, but you're paying for the cost to create the CD, ship it to the store, the store clerk's wages, the store's rent, you're, you're paying for everything involved in that. And now with streaming, there's no fewer of those middle men, right? And so that's why the cost of streaming is so low. And it's something that, you know, some people in the industry bemoan, people say, the digital age was like the downturn of the music industry, but it's not true. It was the downturn for the major record labels who refused to believe that like anyone would ever want to listen to music on the internet. Um, It's actually, in my opinion, and people might argue this, I think this is the best time ever to be an artist. You have the most freedom um, and the best way to connect with your fans directly. And yes, you will you will almost never make enough money off streaming to survive as an artist or to live like a good life. Let's say Um, there's ways to do it, but you need to look at like what the value of recorded music is. Now it's you used to tour to support sales of your record in a store. Now you put out a record on Spotify to tour and make money. Um, And it's actually kind of coming full circle where live music is the main way artists make money, which is how it used to be, you know, in like the 1800s when there was no recorded music. But um, yeah, Spotify and streaming is its whole old world. So I don't know if there's specific things you want to talk about. Um, you can kind of push me because I'll just kind of keep going. All <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, playlists you've brought up a couple of times and I didn't yeah. realize that the importance of playlists play until you, you told me about playlist brokers. Do, yes. do you mind tell? Do you mind uh, refreshing me about what a playlist broker is? Yeah, yeah. So, playlisting is a real big marketing tool right now um, for musicians, and because obviously, as you know, when you're cooking dinner or hanging out with your friends, you might not put on a specific album for an artist, but you'll put on a playlist, like depending on the vibe you want. So, on streaming services, and we'll use Spotify because it's the most used um, and it's the most clear. Uh, Spotify has three types of playlists. Um, there's editorial playlists, which are curated by Spotify themselves. And that's everything from, you know, the like peaceful piano or like jazz chill or music to cook dinner to. Those are all people at Spotify putting those playlists together. Then there's the algorithmic playlist. And that's stuff like New Music Friday, Release Radar, Um, maybe a couple other ones that are just computers feeding you music based on your past history um, and based on a variety of other factors. But then there's a third one called user-generated playlists or UGP for short. And that's, they're kind of special because on Spotify, like you or me can make my, our own playlists and we could grow those playlists and a lot of those playlists can grow to be really big and really popular. Um, and anyone can do it. Um, and so obviously if you're a musician and you get on a big playlist that exposes you to a wide, a wider range of potential fans. Um, so trying to get on editorial playlists and algorithmic playlists is something that music marketers are always trying to do. But a way to kind of get on those editorial playlists is by starting with those user-generated playlists. Um, And for a long time, it was just kind of like, you know, Stu, you might have a playlist that has a decent following and you're just a huge music fan. And I would reach out to you and be like, hey, my song fits your playlist. Do you like it? And you'll be like, like, off, no. Or you'll be like, yeah, I love it. Um, Like, I'm going to add it. But slowly but surely in this great, you know, in the great capitalistic world, people started to figure out that they could make money off this um, and they could charge you to be added to their playlist. Um, and that might, you know, that might be you curating the playlist and also like running the business of charging me to be on your playlist. But you might also outsource that to a variety of companies who now 
will take money from artists to get them on other people's playlists or to pitch them for other people's playlists. So it's a whole kind of side industry going on mm-hmm. here that's filled with a lot of scams, a lot of fake numbers, but there's a lot of companies and people doing it honestly. And if you can do it well, it can really help your career because the more playlists you get added on, whether they're user generated um, or not, that will help like feed into Spotify's algorithm and you'll get more engagement and then you'll get started getting added on more official Spotify playlists and you'll start to see more people coming to your profile. Um, Cause every playlist is a data point in Spotify's algorithm. So the more of those you have, the better it is for you. Yeah. It's like playlist as a service. Like what well, it's, yeah. it's really manually intensive, but we can do it for you for a price. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Cause it's, it's not fun work. It's literally like cold calling people, sending out thousands of emails. Um, and a lot of artists aren't willing to do that. And that's kind of why I say, you know, the crude thing that I said earlier, like, don't tell me about your music. Like, tell me about the other stuff you're doing. Because if you're an artist who's doing that yourself, then it's like, okay, this person really wants it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of companies that will do it for you. I've used some of those companies. And there's also other services that I should mention. Um, who don't pitch for you, but they have become intermediaries between you and the playlist curator. Because, because this is so popular now, like Stu, as the playlist curator, you're getting hundreds of emails every day. And you've said like, enough is enough. I'm going to sign up. So there's one called Submit Hub. And basically what it is, is me as the artist have to pay a dollar or whatever to submit through Submit Hub to you. And you get that dollar, you get that 50 cents. And with that submission, you guarantee me that you're going to listen to 90 seconds of the song and you're going to give me a little bit of feedback, whether or not you post the playlist. So there's people doing it in this kind of way, which I think is interesting. And that might start to build a more sustainable model of it. Um, Yeah. Can you think of any other uh, kind of spinoff industries that are, are emerging now that we've got just so many different channels that music can be consumed through? Biggest one is trying to grow your social media following, trying to grow your YouTube numbers, your Instagram numbers, your Facebook numbers. Um, that's similar to the playlist thing. A lot of like scammy companies are now offering combos of like, we will grow your following and get you on these playlists. Um, but a lot of that is fake. Um, these are kind of like, I wouldn't call them dark industries because they're not necessarily illegal. Although some of what they do is against Spotify's terms of service or social media's terms of service, but it's a lot of really like, you have to dig through and try to figure out if someone is honest um, with what they're doing. Cause there's a lot of people just scamming you for a quick buck. And, yeah. and that's often money is usually not something artists have a lot of. Right. So yeah. that's tight. <laughs> YouTube is one I just had I um having Spotify I kind of listened to that but then for a while I didn't listen to Spotify and I started listening to music on YouTube again nice. and I was just blown away by the music video quality of some people obviously they're a little more popular so now they've got a budget or they've got a production company that's supporting them but music videos are are more are almost more important than ever because it's uh, that idea of repurposing your content, it just can, it's, yes, it costs a lot to make the music video, but then you can chop that up, uh, submit it to TV news. Uh, like when you, when you have your spot on TV, like they can show a really cool clip, mm-hmm. social media, um, like behind the scenes of that shoot. Like it's just a content game at this point to support the music that you're making. Yeah, exactly. And you know, YouTube is actually the, biggest music streaming service in the world. We don't often think of it as a music streaming service, but the way a lot of people are using it is just like that. Um, and the the thing about YouTube that's a real advantage for a lot of artists is the content is monetizable. So even though it's not technically maybe like what you would think of as a streaming service, it really is. And they they pay higher rates per play. I mean, it's fractions of a penny, but it's still a higher rate than some of the other tra- traditional, I say that with quotes, traditional streaming services. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, the... Well, that's the interesting. I didn't know that. Content, yeah, it, it is interesting, right? Um, 
I mean, I'm just a nerd for this stuff, so I think it's interesting, but the visual content and that aspect of the music industry is so important right now. And I mean, it started with music videos back on MTV. That was the first time, like, if you were ugly or like not the best looking, you started to not maybe get as many shots as you might have before music videos were invented. Right. And now they've, it's become a whole culture into itself. And, and it's interesting with what you're saying exactly. Like you need, if you're an artist, you need to have visual content for everything you're putting out, whether it's a full music video, a visualizer, a loop that just goes for three seconds. Maybe it's a 15 second thing. Um, It's even built into Spotify now. Like they're, the, yeah. the album art is now a video playing in the background. There's like a 10 second loop. Yeah, exactly. And you brought up Post Malone earlier. I think he's someone who does this really well. If you go into Post Malone's YouTube, you'll see multiple versions of the same song. Um, so mm. like the day it drops, he'll release the audio on YouTube and that will just have the cover art. Then he'll release a visualizer a week later and that will be something I can't remember what song it was, but one of them was literally just a cigarette that burned down as the song went. And then the week after that, he'll release the full music video. And that drives people back to that monetizable content three times. And it really stretches that content out. Oh, and I should have mentioned before the song drops, he often will drop like a 30 second teaser on YouTube because 30 seconds is usually the minimum amount of time for it to count as a play you won't get paid if someone plays it under 30 seconds or, or whatever that, that number is. Um, so it's a very interesting way to stretch out content and, and make some more money for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And then the person has heard the song three times and they're like, Oh, I actually like the song. And then they'll go stream it wherever else. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. That, that point alone, it works with so many industries when the involve marketing, like you just need to make your content go so much further and appeal to every person um, in a visual, in an auditory, in a tactile, if you can, like live events. Uh, and that kind of brings me to sort of just to wrap things up a little bit where we're recording this under quarantine, which is a, a weird <laughs> thing to say. Yeah. But you also mentioned that touring is one of the biggest revenue generating activities an artist can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of really really interesting things in the last couple of weeks since everyone's been able, been under quarantine of musicians and artists uh, really leaning into live video and really leaning into those distribution channels to connect with their fans, take this as a time to yes, work on their music, but also work on their fan base because their fans are in the same situation, just sitting there being like, well, I wonder what Post Malone's doing today. Yeah. Um, one of the coolest ones I've seen um, is a band that I follow called Arkells. They do a daily guitar lesson where the lead oh, singer teaches. They, they release the chords. They release the, the official chords the day before so you can practice and learn it. And then he does a live lesson teaching you the song. And if someone's like struggling, he'll like video them in. And then the person can say like, how did like, this is a really hard one to play. And then he'll give them tips and then like cancel them wow. out. And, and he sits there for like three hours and just gives a free live guitar lesson to his thousands of fans that show up every single day. And he's that's been doing incredible. that for two weeks. Yeah, that's a really, really good idea. I love that. Yeah. And um, I think it's smart for two reasons. One, it gets people engaged and they're enjoying it and they're, um, it's content, just fresh, and despite like them not being on tour and not having any mm-hmm. kind of, they're, not, they're unable to film music videos, they're unable to do anything in person that they would normally do. But what's even better as, is they're actually teaching their true fans how to play the song so yeah. that that true fan can go to a campfire and play that song and spread the word yeah. of that band for free. Like they're just teaching yeah. them how to play the song and now they can go out and spread the word even further, which I just think is like the, the like you're saying, like kind of that end piece is you need those Uh, evangelists who love you so much that they'll sing your song when someone asks hey what do you want to sing for karaoke they'll go up on stage and sing your song yeah a hundred percent you're totally right um it's funny i was talking to someone recently about like what does this time for artists mean 
and and we kind of landed on you know what like these few weeks or this few months like for an artist like that is kind of like them doing like an internship um because you know it's an internship at their own band yeah but, but it's kind of like it's kind of like you know when you do an internship you go into a company let's say and you you don't really know anybody and you spend the whole time like trying to build relationships and like prove your worth and i think this is a kind of what artists need to be doing over these next few weeks and you've seen we've seen you know we saw that video of all the celebrities singing imagine and it was like super tone deaf and they got a lot of online hate for that right but artists who were creating content in a way that is like connecting with their fans like the arkells people are doing live shows obviously was the most obvious one and other people are doing interesting things showcasing their lives and and it's about just reaching out making relationships and like you said building connections with people who as soon as your internship is over and you're looking for a job or you as an artist are touring again those are the people who are going to want to pay you right oh man that's such a good way of looking at it yeah and i think it's it's hard obviously for artists who lost their income for the next couple months but i think reframing it in that way and looking at the opportunity here can can be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. But there are there are certain um, opportunities here. Uh, one that you mentioned to me is um, in Canada, at least the National Arts Center and Facebook Canada are they've got a bit of a grant program set up right now for musicians to do live shows. Yeah, so the, the National Arts Center and Facebook Canada um, and now Slate Music actually have all come together and they've got a pot of $200,000 and they're encouraging artists to do a live stream show, just an hour, and they'll give you a thousand bucks for it. Um, now, obviously, it's not a ton of money, but that could be your rent for a month. That can be groceries for a couple of months. Um, and all you need to do is email. Um, I don't have the email right on me, but if you look up Canada Performs National Arts Center, you can find it. And um, you just email them, tell them what you're looking to do. And if you get selected, they'll set you up, send you a thousand bucks. And all you have to do is do a show from your house. So I I think stuff like this is really interesting. Um, And it goes back to our conversation earlier, because this is an opportunity to engage your fans, but it's also an opportunity to engage the brand, Facebook, and show them why you're worth taking their money. And also the government, the National Arts Center is a government funded organization. So you have to, when, when you as an artist are sending that email, you have to market yourself to not only Facebook, but to the government and then market your concert to your fans. And I hadn't even thought about this before we started, but it's, it's a nice little like tie in of everything. Yeah. This is, (laughs) this is the big project that gets dropped on the intern's lap saying, if you can do the fans, brands and government, you're hired. You're in. Yeah, exactly. I love that. (laughs) One more, one more quick question for you uh, before we wrap things up. Um, we've talked a lot about kind of the distribution channels being like Instagram, uh, YouTube and every single other one. But with something you mentioned as like a person in the industry, there are channels where business happens. So if you're in, in the tech world, I guess like things happen on email. It's not as as exciting, but in a lot of uh, other industries like the music scene, like um, the event promotion scene, Business actually happens on Instagram. T- tell me about that experience you had of uh, why you knew you needed to get on Instagram. Yeah, it's all DMs. It's all sliding into DMs these days. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I used to like, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but for a long time, I was like a real Blackberry, like diehard guy. So I was on Blackberry for like way longer than I should have. And I didn't have Instagram um, until one day my friend told me like, Cormac, you know, like, business happens on Instagram. Right. And I didn't really know what they meant. I was kind of like, okay, like I'll think about this. And then I was DJing a party like soon after that. And some guy came up to me and was like, yo, I love your set. Like, what's your Instagram? I want to follow you. I want to come up to more shows. And I was just like, oh shit, this is it. Like, and now I've just missed out on a fan. And I remember I was like, are you on Twitter? And he kind of looked at me like, what? <laughs> and then that was it. And I never saw that guy again. And that's when I knew the next day I created an Instagram account. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah. And it, it's always going to keep evolving, but that's a thing 
you just have to pay attention to your audience and and engage with them and they'll they'll give you the the artifacts that you or the clues you need to be successful in the future because they'll tell you where they want to see you they'll tell you what they want to see and they'll tell you what they want to listen to yeah yeah you're right you just got to be listening Awesome, Cormac. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, cool. If you want to slide into Cormac's uh, DMs, Instagram is a place do. to be. Yeah, Cor- that's Cormac McGee, C-O-R-M-A-C dot M-C-G-E-E. I look forward to it. DJ Deadweight. Thanks a lot, man. This has been <laughs> great. Perfect. Cheers. Bye. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, then you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to topofmind.substack.com and put in your email, you can get access to exclusive behind-the-scenes content inspired by this show. So there's going to be candid audio recordings that aren't going to be available anywhere else, not on Spotify, not on Apple, nowhere else except on topofmind.substack.com. But that's not it. It's also a platform where I can share written content, videos, links, and anything else that I come across directly with you. You're going to get access to it right away. You're going to get access to the whole library of archived posts. And you're also going to be the first to be notified when a new episode of Top of Mind comes out. So head on over to topofmind.substack.com. See you there. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.